Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, uh, this is Chris Hosler. I'm an infectious diseases physician at the Durham VA in Duke. At Duke, I'm an assistant professor of medicine for the School of Medicine and a physician epidemiologist for the Duke Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention. At the VA, I'm a staff physician in infectious diseases. Uh, I'm the associate hospital epidemiologist, and I'm the medical director for the antimicrobial decision support team, which is our antimicrobial stewardship program. I'm pleased to be joined here today with my partner in crime and co-director of our stewardship program, Dr. Mary Townsend. Hi, I'm Mary Townsend, and I am the infectious disease clinical pharmacist at the Durham VA. I run with the ID consult service and am the pharmacy director of the antimicrobial decision support team. Um, as well as being the inpatient specialty clinical pharmacy specialist supervisor at the Durham VA. All right, so I apologize if this is a crappy podcast, but today we're going to be talking about C. difficile infection, or CDI. Now, when I say C. diff throughout this talk, I'm referring to CDI, but it's important to understand that there's a very real difference between C. difficile infection and C. difficile colonization, and those are too frequently conflated. My goal is for you to come away from this 10-minute media blitz with a firm grasp on the diagnosis and management of CDI and a genuine appreciation for poop jokes. Uh, Poop jokes aren't exactly my favorite, but they're a solid number two. I (laughs) I see what you did there, and I genuinely appreciate it. Okay, now let's start off with a case. Okay, so here's someone that we would uh, typically see uh, over at the VA. Uh, It's a 67-year-old male veteran with uncontrolled diabetes who comes in with uh, septic uh, with a diabetic foot ulcer. He was empirically put on house wine, which of course is Vank and Piptazo, and admitted to the medicine service. He's given narcotics for pain and is placed on Senna and Docusate for a bowel regimen. Three days into his admission, he still hasn't had a bowel movement, so he's given lactulose, and it works. He's had four loose stools over the course of the next day, so the nurse asks if we should check a C. diff PCR, and the intern does order one, which returns positive. He's not complaining of abdominal pain, doesn't have any nausea or vomiting, isn't having any fevers, and his white count is still elevated at 13, but downtrending from his admission. What kind of risk factors do you see for this particular patient for C. diff, and are his symptoms consistent with CDI? Yeah, those are uh, great questions, and you're right. We see this all the time. CDI is typically characterized by more than or equal to three loose stools, uh, watery stools per day, and patients can also have fever, abdominal pain, nausea, anorexia, and a leukocytosis. Now, usually they have one or more symptom besides diarrhea, but not always. Uh, This patient clearly has risk factors for C. diff in that he's been on broad-spectrum antibiotics, he's over 65, he's at least mildly immunocompromised from his uncontrolled diabetes. But frankly, the diagnosis isn't certain by any means, and we can discuss that in a minute. Now, if he were on PPIs, that would be an additional risk factor, as there's a clear association between PPI usage and CDI. I do want to go over the antibiotic risk factors, though. Uh, Mary, do you mind talking for a minute about what antibiotics are most commonly associated with CDI? Absolutely. 
So the basic principles here is that anything that is likely to be active against a large portion of enteric organisms is also likely to produce an environment where C. diff can grow unopposed. I think everyone here is aware of clindamycin as being the classic antibiotic associated with CDI. And in fact, there was a 2013 meta-analysis by Brown and colleagues that showed uh, patients exposed to clindamycin had at least a 17-fold higher rate of CDI than those without any antibiotic exposure. But clindamycin isn't alone in conferring significant risk. That same meta-analysis showed that patients exposed to fluoroquinolones, cephalosporins, carbapenems, or monobactams like aztreonam had a five to six-fold higher rate of CDI and penicillins, sulfonamides, and microlids had a two to three-fold higher rate of CDI. Here, this particular patient had a broad-spectrum penicillin, uh, which likely has an odds ratio of CDI somewhere between that of penicillins and other broad-spectrum beta-lactams. IV vancomycin has not been associated with CDI because it's not excreted into the gut at all. So of the antibiotics he was given, piptazo would be the only one to confer any significant risk of CDI. But I guess the question here is, does this patient have a C. diff uh, infection to begin with? Yeah, and that's, re that's really the crux of the matter here. Um, the testing that was done, which is the current testing available at both Duke and the Durham VA, is the toxigenic C. diff PCR. Now, this only tells you whether or not you have organisms capable of producing toxin in your gut. It doesn't tell you if those organisms are actually producing toxin and thus causing a clinical syndrome compatible with CDI. In other words, the PCR only tells you whether, you're, whether or not the patient is colonized with C. diff. In order to say that they have CDI, you would have to have a clinical syndrome consistent with CDI, be colonized with C. diff, and believe that no alternative diagnosis is more likely. In this situation, the patient has a downtrending leukocytosis, he has no new abdominal pain, no new nausea, no new fevers, and he was given laxatives, so I think that his PCR is more likely to be reflective of colonization than actual disease. He was actually constipated before they gave him additional laxatives, so he probably should have just been happy that he had a bowel movement and held the laxatives before ever ordering a test. Speaking of constipation, have you seen the new movie called Constipation? No. Yeah, it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> Ugh, okay. So let's, uh, so, but bringing it back to the two-step testing online um, at the VA now, um, can you talk a little bit about what this two-step test means? Well, two-step testing means that if we have a positive PCR, we reflex to a toxin EIA, which is a more specific test for disease. Functionally, what this means at the VA is that for now, we'll send out positive PCRs to a reference lab where they'll undergo GDH antigen and toxin AB EIA testing. GDH antigen is something that's present on all C. difficile organisms, toxigenic or not, so this test is very similar to the PCR in terms of being highly sensitive for colonization, but poorly specific for disease. Simultaneously, the sample will be tested for toxin AB with an EIA. Now, when I was in medical school, this was the only test performed for CDI. It's a highly specific test for C. difficile infection, but the reason most labs around the country moved to PCR at the beginning of this decade is because toxin degrades at room temperature, so the sensitivity of toxin testing is somewhere between 65 and 85%. With two-step testing, you get the benefit of a highly sensitive test for colonization in addition to a highly specific test for disease. So how do you interpret the results? Well, it's easy if you have concordant results. If the PCR or GDH antigen is positive and the toxin EIA is positive, then that's consistent with CDI. If they're both negative, then you can rule out CDI. 
But if the PCR or GDH antigen is positive, but the toxin testing is negative, this most likely represents colonization instead of actual infection. Those patients should be isolated, since they can still, de- uh, they can still disseminate spores every time they have a bowel movement, but they probably don't need to be treated. That said, given the reduced sensitivity of toxin testing, we would still recommend treatment for CDI if the clinical syndrome is compatible with uh, severe C. difficile. Speaking of treatment, for the sake of argument, let's say this patient's toxin test came back positive. He doesn't have hypotension, shock, ileus, or toxic megacolon from what we can tell, so we would classify him as non-fulminant CDI. Mary, how are we treating that nowadays? So last year, the IDSA updated their CDI guidelines and really streamlined treatment approaches. Uh, So metronidazole is now out. Uh, For non-fulminant CDI, we would treat those patients with 125 milligrams of oral vancomycin four times a day for 10 days. I think it's important here to know that oral vancomycin comes in several different formulations. So there are the classic capsules that are available. IV vancomycin can also be compounded into a solution for oral administration, which some hospitals do to save cost. And then there's also now a solution that can be reconstituted right out of the bottle and is a lovely grape flavor. So there have been some improvements made. Alternatively, patients could receive fidaxomycin 200 milligrams orally twice a day for 10 days. But to be honest, Fidaxomycin is about 35 times the cost of oral vancomycin, so very few healthcare systems in the country are using this as first-line therapy. Now, what if he did have fulminant CDI, meaning he had ileus, shock, toxic megacolon? So, yeah, in those patients, treatment hasn't changed significantly since the old guidelines. We're giving 500 milligrams of oral vancomycin four times a day and then adding 500 milligrams of IV metronidazole every eight hours to try to increase the amount of active drug in the colon. If there is an ileus, uh, vancomycin can be given rectally as a retention enema. What if this patient got better with therapy but then recurred? And just to caveat this, when we talk about CDI recurrence, definitions vary throughout the literature, but we'll go ahead and use CDC definitions of recurrence, which is any infection within eight weeks of the initial infection. Yeah, so this is really where C. diff treatment has really changed. Um, Instead of just repeating the same regimens over and over again like we used to, we're now recommending tapering uh, tapering vancomycin and doing pulse doses at the end um, over the course of several weeks or giving a 10-day course of fidaxomycin. Again, oral vancomycin tapers are much more common due to exorbitant costs of fidaxomycin. Once the patient recurs for a second time, that's when we consider fecal microbiota transplant, also known as FMT. Frankly, any patient with two recurrences of CDI probably warrants an ID consult at the VA since we should be evaluating them for FMT. That's right, and we actually have a protocol and have successfully transplanted seven patients in clinic in the last year. Well, I think that's about all the time we have, so I guess I'll end with one final joke. Hey, Mary, did you know that when you say the word poop, your mouth does the same motion as your rectum? Yeah, so you see what I have to work with here. It's the same when you say explosive diarrhea. And with that, I thank you all for listening and just want to say that the views and opinions stated during this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or Durham VA Hospital, though they probably wish they had my jokes. <laughs>